Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a weekly podcast about, you guessed it, board games. My name is Michael Walker. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Good. Should we commit to weekly? Should we just say that it's a podcast? And oh, Wait, that might be committing too much. too much. Can we just say that there is a thing that may or may not be called So Very Wrong About Games, and it may or may not occasionally produce what could be called perhaps a podcast? I think that's a better idea. We have more chances of actually succeeding in that vague description than anything else we've ever done in our lives. Under promise, over deliver. Just that is the motto of the show. Absolutely. Unspoken. So, we are going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. But before all that, and after all that, <laughs> bookended. Okay, we're going to start in the middle. We're going to work our way outwards. It's like a mathematical formula. That's right. First, we're going to talk about our yet unnamed retrospective segment, the Eurus. And then at the very end, we're going to have a topic, which is going to be disappointment, much like this introduction. The cruel betrayal of expectations is the way that I parse it. So nice. let us begin with the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. What did we review last year, Walker? Ultimate Railroads. Railroads, railroads, railroads. Were they that ultimate, really? Like, no. That, that's, that was, talk about disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a number of different ways to play it. And to be entirely fair, we played the ultimate version largely online. It's the actual physical version with all the other possible iterations, uh, we didn't mess with too much, but we did the German one, we did the Russian one, and we did the Asian one. We did not do the American one that had been previously released. But my understanding is that Borgia Marina is the place to be anyway, so who's to say? Yes, this, this is these were during the dark days of swag when I was deep in the throes of perpetual wanderings. Of the, and, of the vids of the, and, the, and the wanderings. <laughs> the vids and the wandering, yeah. Yeah, the dual barrel obstacle to in-person gaming. And Ultimate Railroads was an excellent outlet for such things. It had already been released in Europe at that time, but anyway. So, but now, for a mere, I don't know, what, $130, you could probably get your own copy. If you can find one anywhere, because games are only in print for five hot seconds now. Yeah, we've never... I've never had the urge even to get an, our own physical copy of this game. Yes, you had a strong preference for the digital implementation over physical because of just the relentlessness of large scoring numbers. The onslaught <laughs> of every round massively scoring. Oh, it's it was it two was points rough. from here, five points from here, seven points from here, six points from here, four points from there. Okay, every round. Yeah. Arithmetic the game. I've played Russian Railroads in person. Back when it was first published. And it was, you know, relatively obnoxious, but I, I'm kind of okay. This is not uh, to boast, but I'm relatively okay with lots of small arithmetic. It does wear you down eventually. And it is easy to make mistakes. And some gamers are very much like Walker and get very, very concerned when there is the possibility of small transactional mistakes like that, which is, which is a position I respect. And when you see the BGA do it all automatically, it's yes. hard to go. <laughs> it's hard to go back to the physical version. Yeah. But more, more to the point to the design of Ultimate Railroad by Helmut Oli and Lenny Orgler. To me, it's sort of a quintessential 7 to 7.5 on the Board Game Geek scale Euro. Happy to play it. Got some interesting stuff. Certainly very compelling for the first play. Second and third play starts to get a little smoother and a little bit repetitive. Willing to return to it, but not really setting my world on fire and doesn't provide any strong motivation to revisit it independently. And I understand why it's got its fans. It's, it, it, like I say, it's got some very clever stuff. And 
I think, though, that it's very much in the modern design style of a lot of Euros as well, where there's a lot of superficial variability, but you end up falling into the same patterns, the same roots, and the same ruts. And that's okay. I'd play it again, but I haven't sought it out since we reviewed it. That was the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Ultimate Railroads. Now, on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got I got Witchstone back to the table. This was a review copy. Witchstone? Witchstone. That stone. Yeah. The one that just got... I'm sorry, it's such a terrible... I can't help myself. It's pathological. Mark, yeah. it's the one that just got an expansion. That stone? The expansion is called <laughs> Full Moon. It's a disease. It's awful. This is published by R&R Games, the company that gave us the review copy. It's designed by Reiner Knizia in a rare uh, co-design with Martino Chiquera. And speak of our topic, disappointment. But, um, oh no, I, I'm just not oh sure. no. Well, I'm just not sure. You know, Witchstone came and then left. Yes, right? yes, Lar- largely because my enthusiasm wasn't as high well, as yours. Well, it wasn't. I, I don't think it was just us though. I just meant in the in the sphere of gaming, it was yes. quite a blip. Well, a lot of, to be fair, a lot of recent Reiner Knizia games, even ones that deserve more attention, do disappear as a blip. Sometimes this is because of publication issues. Like I think. I, I hope, at least in my heart of hearts, that something like Whale Riders would have gotten more attention if it had stayed in print longer. Uh, but, you know, Blue Lagoon didn't get the attention it deserved. Millefiori, mostly available in Europe, didn't really get the attention it deserved. So, tough to tell. Because this expansion is very light. It adds very little. And it seems almost like it's like a, hey, do you remember this game oh, no. kind of expansion? Okay. What so, does it add, then? So, there's sort of like a very brief extra like it gives you new main witches made out of plastic so this really nice wooden component game now has these large plastic castles with a wizard or witch huh. that you'd put on them interesting that that's all they do <laughs> what it does do is it now frees up your big witch that you can now they say if you want you can add this to your supply of witches and you can get a bonus when you pick up a token with this big witch Ugh. remember you moved around and you'd pick up the token and you'd get that action yes now you get two of that action because you've used the big witch that doesn't sound inspiring now at all. let's move on to the two <laughs> small modules that come in the expansion okay we only played one mm-hmm. the one that we didn't play it looks as though it has very minor powers. It looks as though you can take a, like, a, it's a card that you get with a familiar, and it's either going to have an action on it with something else, and then every turn you pick one of these things. So you're always going to get either plus one to an action if you just happen to get it that turn or something else. Okay. I haven't looked into it very much. The one that we did play gives you all these small templates that cover up all the different places where you get combos in this game. So for those who have not don't know what Witchstone is, you're placing these, the only, I shouldn't say the the very interesting part of the game is this yes, sort it's of the spatial... action selection. In fact, genial slash ingenious as a way to drive actions. Yes, yeah, so you're placing a tile, you're forming these clusters of actions that will give you, that trigger at these parts of the main board. So you put these little cardboard templates over, and so you sort of forfeit the bonus that you get on these places instead of t- and instead you get to take another tile that is a double action so it's another tile that you're going to put in your cauldron and you do it immediately but it's two of the same action so either two pentagram actions or two so it sort of doubles down on what we had the trouble with the game in the first place is sometimes combos take a little long and bog the game down well guess what now you get a whole other turn because you get another tile that you place in your cauldron and trigger immediately i see 
So then you remove that template and it's a one-time sort of thing. It also added three more cards into the scroll deck. The scroll deck is sort of this like sort of cascading uh, cards that you pick up that give you scoring opportunities at the end of the game. So now there's three of them in that pertain to these new tokens. Do the tokens introduce further interesting spatial trade-offs to the action selection? They really do. Because, oh, okay, good. Well, because you, if you can do the sort of spatial, you know, in your head is that every tile that you're placing has different icons. So you're like, there are big chances that you're going to uh, block off parts of your action selection. Right. Now, now the fact that they have both the same, it's going to reopen or okay. open that up. So it, at least for me, it just happened to work out that it really helped my board. Didn't help me win. <laughs> and now we enter the grievance stage of the review. Well, upon, I don't know why I was reading it, but it, I think maybe just because I knew I was going to be playing Witchstone again, there's just this sort of held thought that the pentagram and even in our planes that the pentagram is the way to score and to win and the play the player, not all of the actions appear to be equally well served especially since several of them sort of have a hard cap because there's the action selection mechanism drives a whole bunch of point salad opportunities and my recollection was that in some of those scoring opportunities i felt that diminishing returns started kicking in if you doubled down on them too much whereas other ones if you just kept hammering them over and over and over again you would keep reaping rewards so guess what the person that hit the the pentagram <laughs> over but i'm also thinking the fact that the other there was a, it was a three player game and much like every other game, if you just let someone get away with something, like if if one of us just sort of hinted at going around the pentagram, <laughs> then they wouldn't have picked up all of the scoring tokens sure. type thing. So maybe it was our own fault. But anyway, the scores were still fairly close. I would put it in the pile of, you know, move on, get rid of it. But the Huey and Louie both very much enjoyed it. It was their first time trying it. Oh, they hadn't played it yet. Nope. Interesting. And uh, so... I'm surprised Louie liked it. I'm going to have to keep it around. So was I. Well, yeah. Louie won, so maybe that like, sort of uh, <laughs> added to the, to the... What are you implying, Walker? The absolutely true fact that sometimes people approve of games more if they win it? Never. Never, never. Yeah, Witchstone was fine. It, it was, as I say, an interesting action selection mechanism to which I'm normally very susceptible but ultimately driving a whole bunch of weird points, point, unsatisfying pointsality stuff. Um, it's disappointing that the expansion seems to be that inconsequential. Although I hear it's got plastic castles. It has plastic castles. <laughs> and that's the other weird thing. It comes in like a little tiny box with a uh -huh. magnetic closing. Like, you know, like really? The, yeah. The flap, you know how the, the flap comes yeah, down and it locks absolutely. magnetically. And yeah. And I'm just like, Yep. That's so bizarre. Yes, I felt really expansion bad. Expansion boxes are the most disposable ever. Why would you make an expansion box box non-recyclable? I don't know. It felt really bad when I put it into the recycling bin. <laughs> Not with the... I had to cut yeah, the magnet. Yeah, you had to cut it out. Yeah. I wow, had to cut the magnet flap wild. off. But because I will not, if I can... Freaking magnets. How do they work? I, I don't know. It's science, Mark. I don't look into science. It's witchcraft. Okay. <laughs> it's witchcraft and stones, Mark. <laughs> it's a stone of witchcraft. Okay, I, I, I see what you're doing. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and that was Witchstone. That was By Reiner Canizia and Martino Chicohera. I get to play Lacuna again. Lacuna is by Mark Garrett. It's published by CMYK. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. This is the... Is that the one that has an expansion coming up called Matata? Lacuna is Latin for gap. Gotcha. Comma. You ignoramus, period. 
So Lacuna is a two-player positional abstract, which is normally not my jam. There are a number of features, though, that make Lacuna aggressively appealing. One of them is just the sheer physical design of the product. And this isn't just in terms of the visual appeal, although Lacuna has visual appeal in spades. But it's also in the sense that it is got a lovely variety of textures to it. So you've got a cloth mat, you've got wooden pieces, and you've got medical, metal tokens. And it is easy to underestimate the effect of just having different textures and a- appealing components until you're actually presented with them, especially in a, in a context like Lacuna. Furthermore, the container, which is a delightful little cylinder, sufficiently small that it can sit on whatever storage medium you already have, but will stand out from the rest of your boxes if you're a collector, so it's both flexibility and uh, flexible and visually appealing, is also practical because it becomes a shaker that distributes the pieces around on the cloth mat, which is amazing and fun. Just sprinkle it over like you're putting parsley on top of your alioioio. And the other thing that's great about Lacuna... Don't store it next to your pepper mill just saying (laughs) oh yeah the confusion alone you might get in trouble Uh, i don't think that your games will go very well and i also think that your your dishes will suffer the the last thing that lacuna has going for it that is utterly different from the vast majority of hobbyist games even positional abstracts is that it is a purely analog experience in that there are no set spaces it's like a miniatures game in that you have to resolve things by distance but you're not going to be measuring hardly ever at all. And the rules can be explained in five seconds. Last time I talked about Lacuna on the show, I gave a full rules explanation, leaving nothing out. I don't mean like, here's the gist of the game. (laughs) Everything can be explained in about 10 to 15 seconds, no joke. And it's wonderful. I don't know if there's a serious first player disadvantage. they, They start with an extra point. But moving first is a serious disadvantage because it's kind of sort of ending up as an area majority influence. Because at the end of the game, all tokens and all points redound to uh, the closest token. So placing your token last, obviously, especially in a geographic game like this, has tremendous impact. That having been said, it's sufficiently quick. You can play two games back to back. And again, normally I'm not in favor of solutions like that. But when Lacuna is so visually delightful and so quick, I do not mind. So Lacuna is a a, a wonderful experience, and it's also just a wonderful product. So it's very much the sort of positional abstract for people who do not like positional abstracts. A number of people said that about That Time You Killed Me, which was released uh, a a while ago. And again, there are flights of fancy in That Time That You Killed Me, like remote-controlled elephants and such, and a weird time travel theme that I thought would uh, might be able to overcome my resistance to the genre. But it really, uh, I cannot think of the last time a a positional abstract has pleased me as much as Lacuna has. And it also has been attracting uh, plaudits from people who enjoy games of that style as well. And so Lacuna, I think, could be one of those serious crossover success uh, games that I hope gets the, the recognition it deserves. I really enjoy Lacuna. It's delightful. Even just looking at it makes me happy. Another hit from CMYK Games, they've really done an excellent job of getting those crossover hobbyist mainstream appeal games. I'm not a huge fan of Monikers, to be frank, but it's a very good execution of a popular IP game. But even their game called Fuzzies, Spots by John Perry, seriously, their catalog is very small but full of hits. Wavelength was the first time they really appeared on my radar. But honestly, when it comes to games that you might find at a big box store, I think CMYK is probably the most reliable publisher you're going to find. 
Anyway, suffice to say, I've been having a blast with Lacuna. Looking forward to showing it to you. I'm glad you're enthusiastic about it. And so, as a consequence, probably more to follow. That's Lacuna by Mark Garretts, published by CMYK Games. I got Dice Miner back to the table. This is designed by Joshua DeBoines and Nikola Rosinski. And this is put out by Atlas Games. And what you do in Dice Miner is you're sort of creating a pool of dice as you're drafting them from this mountain. And you it's an interesting little, you can only take from the ed, top edges of the mountain. You can't let any dice slide down. You sort of have to pick and choose. And sometimes there are beers, and so you get to trade them to your partners, and then therefore you get, not partners, your opponents. <laughs> yeah. Therefore you get to pick. It's an involuntary trade, yeah. You'll get to pick two dice, and so there's there's all sorts of different dice. There's magic dice that let you re-roll. There are uh, white dice that you're doing sort of sets, runs. There are hazards like cave-ins and dragons. You need shields and pickaxes to protect you from these things, which are the green dice. There are also yellow dice, which are gold, straight-up victory points. All these cool little combos that you're sort of building, and then when you're done, you get to keep those dice that you drafted that round. You roll them all, and then you draft another whole set three rounds in a row, and you slowly build this giant engine of dice. Always enjoy playing Dice Miner. Easy to teach. Quick to play. All of these different special powers. Everyone gets a card at the beginning that gives you like a slight advantage. Very much enjoy Dice Miner. It's got a strong visual gimmick that is executed pretty well. Just watching the, the dice piled up on a bias the way that it is, looking almost like, uh, I don't know, a mountain, for example, and you just start taking away the dice. It, 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 that part is awfully cute. I find it a little too light for my tastes and a little inconsequential, but it does it does uh, have a, a definite sense of an arc in that your your dice keep accumulating, and the visual appeal is, is certainly there as well. It's no lacuna, though. That's Dice Miner by Atlas Games. Got to play some Pavlov's House. Pavlov's House is by David Thompson, the first published version of his Valiant Defense series, although not the first one he designed, interestingly enough. The physical version was published by Danverson Games in 2018, and I was playing the digital adaptation by Bookmark Games. Both the physical version and the digital version are review copies sent to us by the designer. Now, those who know me and have listened to the show know that I'm usually not a huge fan of digital adaptations, but in the case of Pavlov's House, it is probably my most reliable exception, given my enthusiasm for the design. And it wasn't that I don't have a physical copy, which I do, and I very much enjoy playing that as well. I've organized everything in a little Play-Doh box. But I, again, I was on the road, and in the context of wanting to play some board games, uh, a solo game playable by Steam is absolutely a way to do it. Now, people often in the context of historical war games, looking at a series, and they say, which one should I start with? And, you know, the answer is twofold in the case of the Valiant Defense series. One of them is the one I always say, which is pick the historical engagement that you find the most interesting. And that is one of the reasons why soldiers and postmen's uniforms has a special place in both our hearts because of how interesting that engagement was and, and how it's modeled. But in the context of Pavlov's House, it's probably mechanically the one that's most distinct from the other games in the Valiant Defense series because of the fact that you also have on top of this tactical positioning where you're moving soldiers around, equipping them with ammunition, managing their actions, unengaging them, trying to get them unexhausted, etc. You also have a strategic perspective of ferrying supplies across the Volga River, dealing with artillery strikes, dealing with airstrikes against you, trying to call in reinforcements, etc., etc. And rather than having to constantly shift your attention back and forth and thereby getting distracted, they really dovetail together very, very well. And all the mechanisms involved in 
and all of the Valiant Defense series are sufficiently simple and approachable that it is not the kind of thing where I feel like I'm shifting mental gears constantly, even though one of the systems is card-driven and the other system is action-driven. But ultimately, I feel that the way you have to set things up and get your supplies in order, as well as execute those supplies well, really has a an excellent, excellent tactical strategic interface, especially for a game of its weight, which is to say very, very low rules overhead, but you nonetheless get these satisfying interactions. Pavlos House is a wonderful, wonderful design. I feel in, in many ways, I regret that I didn't jump on Pavlos House when it was, when it was first released in 2018. We only really discovered David Thompson and his designs in about 2020. That's two years of David Thompson. I missed Walker. It's like a hole in my life. Exactly. When I look back on my deathbed at my misspent youth, I will, I'll probably be okay with it. But, but 2018 and 2019, when there was no David Thompson, there could have been more David Thompson. That's going to burn. I am listening to you talk about that game. I'm going to have to play them both together more because I, I, I want to get this feeling of uh, soldiers and postmen's uniforms is at the very beginning of the war. And I realize in, in fresh in the minds was World War One to these people but it was fairly quite a while before that what sorry what do you mean quite a while before that i mean like world war one was before before world war two had started is what yeah I mean. you, usually that's the way numbering systems I, work yeah. yeah i mean it wasn't just a few years <laughs> right so there is this sort of hesitance to engage like the you know i mean it's like a you know, I mean, it's they haven't had this like long-lasting battle. Right, there have been, ma- been mounting preparations, and there have been uh, mounting suspicion and mounting tensions. But exactly right, like nobody. Yeah. But now, normal men are being asked to take the lives of other men, yes. right? And that sort of hesitation, and then whereas Pavlov's house is is just in the middle of the of the grind and and. It's interesting though. There, there have been a number of studies. There's there's a difference between conscript soldiers and volunteer soldiers, because and, and I was actually reading a fascinating article, mini article, blog post by Chris Farrell, who's one of the war gamers that I that I respect the most, and he talks a lot about how in contemporary American war game design, there's been an increased hyper focus on. Units like paratroopers. I've complained about this before, but on, on, under a different aegis, just in the, the notion of this being somewhat repetitive. You know, first you do Normandy, America only, then you do America paratroopers, then you do maybe Stalingrad. And that's the way every series seems to go one, then the other, then the next. And Chris Farrell's point was back to your specific point when you start focusing on these elite volunteer forces, you lose sight of the fact that there's evidence to suggest that only about 20% of the conscript population actually ever discharged their weapons. Because it's precisely that burden, that psychological barrier of trying to get someone to try to take another human's life is real hard. And it's something that military training has been struggling with for millennia. And the, the ramifications of that, as an ethicist, as a pacifist, as somebody who thinks about these things, is huge, and it's fascinating. And the more war games seek to move away from that, to the hyper-elite, to the ones who are, who, who again, who volunteered and were, were trained within an inch of their lives and away from, from conscripts, I think we start... Propaganda is a strong word but we start getting a warped vision of modern conflict. And that's one of the reasons why soldiers in postmen's uniforms, they weren't even conscript soldiers 
Some of them were soldiers that had been that had been specifically placed inside the postal service for a variety of reasons. It's such a weird conflict. But some of them were literally postal carriers <laughs> that had been handed weapons and told to defend themselves against the SS. So yes, utterly fascinating. Sorry for the digression, Walker. No, you were, no, you were making up. There wasn't a digression. That's exactly. Yeah, it was on point. And so you wanted to. You wanted to. Uh, you're right. There is a there is a serious difference though in terms of the overall historical conflict, right? Because. Soldiers in Postman's uniform is, a, is sort of a hyper-modern, small-scale, specific building thing, whereas Pavlov's house, yeah, you focus on one building, but this is well into the war. Everything's been bombed to smithereens. The only reason why it's standing is because it was it was strangely fortified, the way a number of apartment buildings at that time were. And again, there's this broader strategic focus, which Soldiers in Postman's uniform doesn't have. They just have the weapons that were left inside the, 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 the postal house for a variety of reasons. David Thompson has a good eye. For picking these interesting engagements, I have to say. Although he's not the first to have Pavlov's house has already been represented in a number of other concepts. Anyway, Pavlov's house. Pavlov's really house. Interesting engagement. Interesting game series. David Thompson, Dan Versen Games. All right. So I brought Marvel United to the table. Mark was nice enough to pick it up for me in the past, and I wanted to play it some more. It is designed by Andrea Cervestio and Eric M. Lang. This is put out by Simon. It really emphasized, Mark, we talked about a sort of trend that I thought there was about putting out preying on collectors. Yes. And one in which we disagreed uh, vehemently well, this, on some corner. Well, cases. I think if you play, if you ever played this more, you could see how they really dialed in <laughs> the the different characters. Right, the decks are so similar. Yes, that it is, I was very disappointed. That is utterly ridiculous, and the fact that they've put out so many character <laughs> sets, like yeah, it is really adding into my. I, I I hear you. I share your disappointment because even though I'm not particularly sympathetic to the Marvel universe. You have to you have to play on the fact that you have these very iconic characters. That's obviously what you're doing. And when the Hulk feels so similar to I don't know, pick a pick like uh, 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 Captain Marvel or uh, Black Widow or Spider Man or Miles Morales as Spider like whatever. When what is it? Three cards that's different between the different something like that. They all have. It's like very a, yeah. disappointing. And but in in his defense, Eric Lang. It's an interesting ambit. Now, whether this is a question that I think Walker would say should not have been asked, or at least should not have been answered, but Eric Lang's question was, can you make a family weight lifestyle game? Lifestyle meaning endless expansions, huge amount of money if you want to go all in, you know, the same way that people might go all into HeroScape or something like that. You could go all into Marvel United. And he was gratified to find out that the answer was yes. And I think your response is, don't ask the question. Right, because they're all in chibi form, very much like the Punkle Pop thing, and so it's just, I think it's just triggering all this, <laughs> you know, must have it all to, I don't know. Sure. But, Buttwalker, but, how about them Spider-Verse movies? Mark, I don't even know what to say. They are so good. So, I, hit me right in the feels, man. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I don't, like, I literally didn't go to the, like, someone said, do you want to go see... Oppenheimer and I said I just I cannot watch another film at the moment. I am just Yeah, sure. I am legit. I am on this high of what is the new Spider-Verse and You should watch Oppenheimer though. I I I, I will. Oh, for sure. There's no there's no nothing going to okay. stop me from watching. It. I'm just saying yeah, yeah. So yes, really dialed in character powers. Still enjoy the gameplay. It's very light, easy to teach and you know, gives you this feel of, you know, sort of like 
Sentinels of the Multiverse, the board game. You actually have physical heroes moving around and and you're beating up thugs and rescuing civilians. And at least the the villains sometimes have an interesting sort of mechanic that changes up how the game is played. What right? villain did you play this time? We played with Kingpin. He was very much... He had... Did you play Miles Morales? <laughs> no. Like, oh! It's it taken from me. Oh! <laughs> by the boy. The boy took The boy took it? The boy. He, the boy took Oh, wow. Oh, he goes, I, I want to play Spider-Man. And we all just look at him and we're like, what Spider-Man? There's six, okay? Just, <laughs> you just can't say Spider-Man. And of course, he goes, well, I'll play Miles Morales. You missed your chance yeah. then. You just could have shoved him any one of the uh, other Spider-Man. I probably would have picked someone else anyway because I, okay. I, there's so, we have so many characters. I know, but... The, so the I play, man. I played uh, Drax. Drax from, against the Kingpin. Wow, uh, that's strange. From uh, from and do you know what do you know what Drax does? He punches. Does he now? Or 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 punches? Oh, yeah. He has a he has a very variety deck that that Drax guy does. Well, him, much like his vocabulary in the movie. Um, <laughs> that's not fair. His vocabulary in the movie. He's, he's actually yeah, pretty like, well spoken, as I recall. I think I've seen the first movie. He's just very well spoken about all the things he does not understand. Just so. I've totally lost my line of thought. We were Reasonable. talking about the kingpin. We were talking about a lot of things. So actually. The, the kingpin, <laughs> he has things where you just, you don't get to, uh, in Marvel United, you're trying to fill these cards with civilians or thugs. And you can't do that when you fight the kingpin until you resolve some of these other events. So you still have to rescue civilians and, and beat up thugs because you can't let the cards fill up. So you're sort of trying to keep that low enough while you're doing other things. So then you can start blah, blah, blah. Right. And you know, there's tons of different villains. If it's your thing, I guess there's enough there to keep you happy forever. <laughs> really. There is so much now. I don't know. They're like fifth wave, a billion, like pick a character. They have, well, they haven't done now. that many campaigns, but each campaign has had so much content. Yes. And you have everything from the first wave. I believe. I believe so. Okay. And that is Marvel United. Daredevil season one was also really good on the topic of Kingpin. <laughs> I get to play demon ship. I talked about demon ship earlier on the show because I really liked the sort of distribution model that posited demon ship is a tabletop miniatures game that is self published by the designer Malav Shinobi. And it consists entirely of a series of room encounters. And so the idea is you buy the rules online and you either make, make do with whatever terrain you have. So anything that can represent uh, a series of tiles, it's a six inch by six inch room that is going to be repeated several times. So there's a bunch of terrain that you then just rearrange every time you enter a new room because you're on a demon ship. Oh, you move the furniture for a second. You move the furniture. I thought we were doing Darkest Dungeon again, where you just do the same thing over and over again. But go ahead. No. Sorry, you move the furniture. And every time you enter a new room, because the ship is rearranging itself, because it's gone through some sort of dimensional warp. Sorry. Sorry. Dark Souls. Not Darkest Dungeon. Ah, yes, yes. Thank you. Continue. Sorry. Both both equally painful, but for different (laughs) reasons. And... If you want, you can also buy all the STLs necessary for all the terrain, as well as the figures themselves. All told, this is a very, very minimalistic enterprise, especially when you give the files over to the Handwerker. The Handwerker has an appeal, like many enthusiasts, for a 15 millimeter scale, which is roughly half as big as your standard scale. Consequently, I now have a beautiful, expertly painted, terrain magnetized 15 mil scale version of demon ship. The entire thing fits into a metal tin, roughly the size of a pack of cards. 
and I get to set up the little rooms and move the little... It's a space. It's obviously the Doomslayer from Doom. I mean, let, let's be frank. Move them around, and have these lovely little... It's so adorable. So incredibly adorable. Honestly, it would be also adorable if it were at full size, because again, we're talking about six inch by six inch rooms that, you're, that, that we're dealing with here. So when I say it's a tabletop miniatures game, eh, not much table will be topped by this particular game. But in 15 mil, oh my go gosh, it is so adorable and twee. Now, the game itself is actually surprisingly interesting, especially for a first-time independent tabletop wargame designer. Because it is often the case in independent tabletop wargame design, as well as corporate mainstream tabletop wargame design, that they're like, okay, I really like the setting, I really like the, the look of the figures. Okay, how, what about the game mechanism? Well, so there's the setting, and there are these figures, and I'm really big, it's like, so uh, the game is like, I don't know, roll a d6 or something. That is frequently what you encounter. What What's going on in Demon Ship is actually, it's a, it's a bit of an interesting evolving tactical puzzle because you roll your activation dice. Anything that's a one, two, or three will result in immediate enemy activation. Four, fives, and sixes allow you to do your actions, but each action triggers a specific reaction after your actions are done. And so the challenge is to figure out what actions to use from your available action dice that will trigger reactions that are useless to the enemy. And those trade-offs are, are fascinating. As well, it's got, I think, one of the best balances in terms of respawns that I've seen in a very, very long time. Frequently it is the case, and we encounter this all the time in all kinds of board games as well as tabletop games, my favorite tabletop miniatures indie game, which is to say Horizon Wars Zero Dark, suffers from this problem as well. And that is, well, when you've killed everybody on the map, you get a huge respawn, so there's no point in doing it. You might as well leave one person alive and just kite them as best you can. Demonship has a very, very good trade-off. And that is to say, if the table is empty of enemies, during your next activation roll, you ignore all the enemy activations and instead do a single spawn. And so suddenly the trade-off makes sense in a way that it almost never has in previous games. I'm a big fan of Demonship. The, the biggest problem that I had other than getting over how twee and adorable everything was, is the fact that, like, almost every indie miniature game, you end up flipping back and forth between six tables that are crucial to moment-to-moment -moment play, none of which are in the same chapter. <laughs> every time. Every single time. So, the big question then becomes, for me, when, when I'm going to keep a war game that has lots of different components involved, the big question is, are you going to bother buying a Plano equivalent and sorting all the tiles in there? In the context of an indie miniatures game, the question is, are you going to go to the bother of making a player aid for yourself? In the case of Demonship, the answer is yes. I'm absolutely going to do that. It plays fast. It plays quickly. The trade-offs are very pointed. It is a tactical puzzle that feels like a tactical puzzle, not just a puzzle and not just straight dice rolling. I'm a big fan of Demonship. It's got the visual appeal. It's got the thematic appeal. It's got the material appeal, thanks to the Hanverker. Go get yourself a Hanverker if you can. I highly recommend it. And Hanverker's for everyone. Hanverker's for everyone. I, look, I'm no socialist, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that the uh, the, the means of Hanverker should be collectively owned. Demonship, check it out. It's available through Black Sight Studios, which is Maledishinobi's website. You can buy just the rules. You can buy SDLs. You can buy a physical version. Very, very interesting design. Solo only, but with with oppositional modes that I have not tried. I haven't even investigated them because I was just on the road. I just had a small amount. Even if you print it out at full size, we're not talking about a big commitment. 
Very interesting design, and I, and I am, for one, I'm happy to support alternative models of miniatures game distribution, because quite frankly, even though I love Corvus Belly, uh, I really don't like Games Workshop, and this is a hobby that has been far too expensive and with a far too big barrier to entry for too long. Even even Heroescape. Like those, a lot of those games I love, but let's be frank, they don't need to all cost $500 to be able to get your foot in the door. And Demonship, I think, is a great example of one of the things you can do. Demonship. That, that when you're talking about dice manipulation, it made me think of a, the story for uh, Project Elite that I didn't say. We streamed Project Elite a few weeks ago, so you should watch it because it was hilarious. There was this very particular nasty boss that came out. I can't remember the power it had, but it was awful. We all looked at each other and said, okay, we're, we're done. We're, <laughs> is, we're in big trouble because you said, oh, we have to get out there and kill it. And we looked at see, well, how fast is it going to get up on us? Well, moves like one space a turn. It's like, oh, that word doomed. And then we just thought, well, no. And so every time we rolled our dice and it was alien <laughs> movement, this boss <laughs> streamlined it across the map like a, and, like, and then stopped right in front of all three of us. <laughs> we just mowed it. It was nice. hilarious. Nice. I loved it. Anyway, moving on. I got Caverna to the table twice this week, plus games on Board Game Arena. Caverna, the Dice Farmers, this is sort of an offshoot of Agricola, except you're playing dwarves in the in the base version. The, the Cave Farmers. You said the Dice Farmers. Sorry, uh, Caverna, the, the Cave Farmers. You're right? thinking of Dice Miners, yes, and now you're thinking of Caverna. That, that'll head. be the Dice version. Caverna, the Dice Miners. So they play very similar, except for the fact that you potentially have a harvest every turn in Caverna, but they offset that by making food a little more readily available. A little more readily available. Let us speak as adults, Walker. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be conflict back and forth. But that being said, uh, very interesting things to do. You get to go on little adventures with your dwarves. You can give them a weapon and they go out and do things. And, and uh, you have a green side where you're going to plant vegetables and and raise animals and then you have a cavern side where you're going to have ruby and and mines and rooms that is the big difference between the two games in agricola you have a whole bunch of cards that you're going to play during the game in caverna you have these room tiles that everyone can buy sort of but that being said there are so many and you're sort of like they're pouring over them you're trying to decide yeah. which ones are going to be built Sort of a drawback to it. But anyway, it's designed by Uwe Rosenberg, much like Agricola is. And we also played, we streamed, even though there was like a blackout in the middle mark, it was awful. Uh, so there's two parts to the stream. We played with the Forgotten Folk expansion. What the Forgotten Folk expansion is, instead of playing dwarves, you play all sorts of different fantasy races. And they give you all sorts of different benefits and drawbacks. I were, was playing the Halflings mark. Very nice. When, when you plant, when you plant crops, instead of placing one vegetable on top of each one, you plant two. Instead of two grain, you put you put three. Isn't that great? And when you when you breed animals, if you have at least four, you don't get just one animal. You get two animals. You mean halfling animals are more randy? Yes, so okay. much more. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they do, but and maybe it's what they feed them. I I, I don't know. <laughs> so you'd think, man, playing the halflings must be great. Those are gluttonous halflings. 
They must have second breakfast, Mark. Do they eat more? They eat more. Oh, wow. That sounds like a pretty big trade-off. Instead of two food per worker, it is three food per worker. Ouch. And, oh, my goodness. Are even the babies gluttonous? No. Luckily, oh, the babies? Okay, that's luckily, something. Luckily, it's not so bad. And then when you get those breaks where it's only pay one food per worker, then you, that's a big break. But that's still, true. still, three food per worker is awfully nasty. So, we played with the Forgotten Folk expansion this week. Next week, we are streaming again, and we're going to be playing with the Fant- F- Fanatic Friends, Fiends, Fanatic Fiends expansion. And unfortunately, they don't play together. I didn't realize mm. at first, you can, only, you can only play one expansion or the other. This one, orcs are attacking, and you can I think you take some of them prisoner, or lots of stuff happening, lots of extra components. I've yet to dive into the rules. I'm going to need to do that soon. But another whole way to change the game of Caverna. Looking forward to it. Check it out. Caverna. I sat in on the tail end of one of those games of Caverna and reminded me that I would like to play Caverna again sometime. It's been a while. But I I really do think that you're underselling the extent. This is not a criticism. But I really do think you're underselling the extent to which Caverna's economy is more forgiving than Agricola's. In Agricola... You very frequently have to spend your entire action to just get to read because that's the only way you're going to get read. And you just have to do it. In Caverna, you have adventures, which give you a recipe, a list of things. You just select from a menu any number of different different resources. In Agricola, you don't do that. When you get something, you get something very specific. You almost never get yourself in a position like, oh, here's a list of 12 things. Take whatever you want. And during that last round of... of Caverna, I twice saw different actions that gave multiple rubies all at once. And a ruby can be traded in for more or less whatever you want, whenever you want to. And that level of flexibility, number one, opens up trade-offs. Absolutely, 100%. But number two, very much changes the feel of the game. That's all I want to observe. Agreed. Okay. Otherwise, it'd just be the same game. Would be yes. the point. What would be the point? Other than the fact that Caverna <laughs> goes up to seven and the modern Agricola yeah, goes that up is to such four. A, yeah, and that is not even with expansions. Yeah. Such, such a weird... Uh, so bizarre. Does, yeah, Caverna out of the box does one to seven players. Yep. Do not ever play with seven. Which is weird because the first edition of Agricola was one to five. Five is okay with very experienced players. It's starting to push it, right? One to four... It isn't even so much that you want the fifth player available, but at least has more components available so you run out less often. It's bizarre. They got it right the first time, and then they've been backpedaling ever since. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) I get to play Pocket Master Builder. This is a game whose coverage was requested by a listener, and it is very simple. Uh, We are, uh, what's the word, very insecure. And if you say that you want us to cover something, we'll cover it, especially if you're a patron. And And so With a blanket or tarp. (laughs) All right. Pocket Master Builder is a one to two player card game that has uh, some non-card components, but basically it comes in a tuck box and it's hyper minimalistic. And I very much appreciate that design aesthetic. It was designed by Weimin Ling of My Min Games, and it's seeking to be a full builder style Euro game in just a card tuck box. And in that sense, I think it's pretty successful. There's one glaring issue with Pocket Master Builder. And that is, and I think everyone's more or less on the same page, it does not have any kind of icon glossary or reference that is remotely satisfying. 
In point of fact, this was evident right from the start, because you get these cards at the start of the game, which are Oracle cards. They're end-game scoring bonus cards. You know, pretty standard Euro stuff. And you look at these cards like, okay, well, this... Does this... I have no idea what this means. And the only reference that exists for the Oracle cards are actually included, somewhat counterintuitively, in the solo rules. And so you look at that, and even then I was thinking... Uh, I think I know what this means, but I'm not 100% sure. And then I would start looking at the cards. The cards give you various bonuses once you have built the thing, because there's an interesting tempo involved in Pocket Master Builder. Cards hit the table long before they are built. And mostly the cards that get added actually give texture to the worker placement spaces. Because when you put out a worker, what you do is you're actually putting it at the juncture between two cards. And it is only when you exhaust that worker, which you may do at any later time that you wish, that they generate the resources involved purely for the purpose of actually building one of the cards that is already on the table. So there's this interesting evolving geography on the map as you put out more cards on the grid that is making new worker spaces, making new valuable resource spaces that might or might not be activated by you or your opponent at various times in the future, as well as offering building opportunities. Sometimes you play a card because you want to build the card, Sometimes you play a card because you want to make a really valuable new worker placement space. Sometimes you even build a card because you want to accelerate the pace of the game in interesting ways. That part I thought was super cool. But I still had a hard time trying to internalize what the cards did. It's not that they're fabulously esoteric or complicated or bizarre. There are some interesting combos that you can generate, absolutely, a la standard building Euro game. The problem is I had a difficulty parsing what they were. There's this one icon that shows up that I couldn't find anywhere in any of the rules documents. I had no idea what it was trying to do. I didn't build that card for obvious reasons. So it's an impressive design philosophy. Is there room in the lovely little tuck box of the four or five different kinds of cards, as well as little wooden cubes to indicate ownership for another rules reference? Probably. Uh, really should have been there. And so, I, you know, normally I wouldn't object so much, you know, go and print out something from, from a file. But, uh, but when I get the impression that at this point, the form started to come at the expense of function, I start to get a little quibbly now. And I was, and I wasn't in a position because I was gaming on the road and I thought, oh, this is great. It's just a small tuck box. It'll be great to take with me to then have to go and print out a player reference or play with a computer next to you for a fan-made reference of what the cards actually do, it kind of defeats the object a little extent. So I was intrigued by the design philosophy, and I found some of the gameplay elements to be rather interesting, but ultimately I found the experience rather frustrating. Now, does the game deserve another look? Probably. Am I going to be in a position to do so? Maybe, maybe not. It's a competitive market. You have one chance to make a first impression. And honestly, my sense of the game's cleverness was overwhelmed by Pocket Master Builder's minimalism and approach to explaining how any of the cards work. So maybe more to follow, maybe not. Uh, I hope I see more work from Wayman Ling going forward, but I hope at this point he's able to get a slightly better editor uh, who's able to make sure that the materials are easily comprehensible. So that is Pocket Master Builder. I got Flick of Faith back to the table. Unfortunately, it's in this weirdly shaped box. So it was tucked up in a corner <laughs> where it was out of sight for a while. Gladly I saw it. So down it came onto the table. Yeah, one of the early put a neoprene mat into a box experiments that led to very strange dimensions. And it is a dexterity game, which like Mark said, it is a flicking Flicking the disc type game and it's designed by everyone. And I'm very sorry about these pronunciations. Camille Jazarbek, Paul Sabowski, Jan Trabanowski, Luke 
Lukas Wolschuk. And this is put out by Awaken Realms Light. And what you're doing is you have five discs and you're flicking them from your corner island out into the world of the other, you know, three islands that are out there. You can flick onto your own and you're trying to get presence and you're trying to get majority on all of these different islands. It comes with all sorts of different god powers and its other hook is you are flipping up two sort of laws every turn that are going to drastically change how you're flicking discs that round and sometimes even for the rest of the game. So unfortunately, we got a really weird one in the very first turn of our first game back, which was any discs on a border were removed oh, wow. from the map. And the borders are all sorts of things. They're borders all the way around the islands. And then in the middle of each island, there's a border for a city. So if the disc was touching that, it was also removed. And the fact that you have to get the disc inside the city to get a bonus made it almost impossible. So it kind of took that out of the whole game. Yeah, did, didn't we have an experience where a couple of the cards that get flipped up, we looked at them and said, that doesn't seem very fun. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm always worried about. I get the same, it's the same sort of feeling I get in Santorini Right, where you have these god right. powers that just take away from wh how I enjoy the base game. And then you get these weird... But th luckily, the second game just had fun and interesting, like, close your eyes before you shoot, or stuff like that. Right? <laughs> Things nice. that, yeah, that are fun, or, you know, dropping them instead of flicking them, or and stuff like that. Sure. Lots of them are interesting. You vote on them, and, you know, they come up. And then there was a weird one that was Barbarians, and it said if if your, your, your disc was touching one of the temples or if the, or if your disc touched a temple then remove it which we we couldn't interpret unfortunately like okay. does it mean like flick it and it hits it it's out or do you actually have to somehow mm. perfectly nudge up against it which is almost as impossible yeah i remember some of the definitions in the rule book being a little fast and loose yeah so anyway i i enjoy it it's very much very easy to teach you know you flick your five discs yeah, it's a flicking area majority done. game. You know, the fundamentals are there. Some of the, there's there's an expansion that came out before that gave you a ramp and all sorts of crazy new powers really? and stuff. Really? Yes. A little ramp. A little ramp? Ramp. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Okay. This is actually, for a while now, months, I've been thinking that I want to get Flick Wars back to the table. Yes. Which is less of an area majority game with flicking and more of like a tabletop miniatures game with flicking. But That's Flick of Faith by Awaken Realms Light. Got to play Oros. Oros is a game designed by Brent Brinkerhoff and published by AESC Games. This is published this year after a successful crowdfunding. And this, too, is a game that we're talking about because a listener recommended it. And it is a... It's not a tile-laying game. It looks like a tile-laying game. But it's, in fact, a tile manipulation game. You don't lay any tiles. New tiles show up, but purely on a, on a mechanistic level and, and not as a consequence of people playing them from any kind of hand. The goal of Oros is to basically terraform your way to success and then build on top of that terraforming. It is the most spatial puzzly game that I've ever enjoyed that I of the past few years because you end up looking at the board and you have very simple tools that you can use to manipulate the state of the board. Terrain comes in various levels, one, two, three, four, and mountains. And very much the goal of the game is to build and exploit mountains because mountains are where you can score your points. And mountains get created when two fours smash against each other. Smash a one into a two, it becomes a three. Smash a three into a two, it becomes a four with a remainder. Ooh. Smash two fours together, you get a mountain. And 
the first few turns, for all of us, I think, we were staring at the board like a monkey doing a math problem, saying, like, where do fours come from? And it's like, well... When a mommy four, when a mommy and, a four and a daddy four love each other very, very much. Anyway, and that was more or less the vibe. And then we started getting into it, and then we started shoving things around and smashing continents and sliding everything around. I, As I say, it's, it's very much, especially in the early stages, a bit of a spatial puzzle because you start it very, very weak. But there are things you can do to get stronger, but at the expense of flexibility because there's this action selection mechanism, which at the first few turns seems trivial. But as you start leveling up your abilities, suddenly you might find yourself in a position where your action selection gets hampered. And you can't do the things you want to do, even though the actions that you do are much more powerful. And it goes in these cycles where you feel like you're able to do exactly where you want, and then there are cycles where you feel like you have to build everything up over the course of three turns. I thought it had a very interesting arc as a consequence. I didn't find the limitations frustrating, but I found them very, very limiting. So, again, there are these two things that I normally don't appreciate in board games that Oros did, I think, extremely well. One of them was this sort of spatial manipulation, spatial puzzle game, as well as a very restrictive action selection mechanism that, nonetheless, I found challenging to overcome in a very satisfying way. That having been said, it was a very, very thinky, sort of dense experience, despite a relatively light rule set. What did you think, Walker? I didn't like it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is, I think, an understatement. I, the action selection, I agree with you. I, I very much enjoyed that part. The sort of puzzling out how to manipulate your workers around because you had to get them off your board because they blocked uh, your 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 actions. So you had to get them onto the board, but you also wanted them on the board anyway. But figuring out how to do that the best way was very interesting. It's the fact that you had this huge sort of scale of everything that broke all of the rules in the game and and you sort of had to track what other people because it's very much you had to know what other people could do because you that's true because they could steal things it's all like top level they could just steal stuff from you right? no you're no you're exactly right i know but i mean like just to make it easy you know it's not you don't actually steal stuff but anyway they they could take away what you've you've set up, it, it right? Was, it was all too easy for the laborious setup you engage in over the course of a turn to be entirely undone because you had failed to internalize the upgrades that your opponent had already taken. Just so. So, yep. So you have to t keep track of these plethora, <laughs> 20 or so different upgrades that, oh, yeah. that someone might have. And some of them are huge. For example, one of the common things you'll do is you'll shift a bunch of tiles over some number of spaces. And one of the rules of the game in the early bits of Oros is any row with a mountain cannot be shifted until people can. And then all of a sudden, all bets are off. <laughs> and so, yes, that was one of the things where I remember very distinctly setting myself in a position because I, I think I got to that upgrade first. And so I started muscling mountains around like it was no thing and then when somebody else was able to do the same i was completely caught by surprise because i had not paid attention to the, the fact that they had gotten the same upgrade so i hear where you're coming from so maybe with multiple plays i'll it'll win my win my win me over but as it is it didn't do it for me you seem to find it more frustrating than challenging yes yeah just so but I have to say, again, very much like Lacuna, but from a different perspective. Lacuna obviously is very, very simple, very visually delightful. Oros is also very visually delightful, but it's got simple rules that lead to very, very puzzly kind of thinky turns. And a lot of your plans can get undone because you just missed that last detail. But there's always something for you to do to smash things around and make new stuff happen on the, on the board where you can 
try to hope that it might eventually pay off for you. And then, of course, if you do this in a slapdash way or in an overly careless way, your next opponent will take advantage of the thing you just did. In point of fact, the game ended because I made a mountain thinking that I would then be able to take advantage of it, not realizing that you, Walker, being the, the player to my left, would immediately be able to take advantage of the mountain I made, thus ending the game. And I, leaving me to sit there saying, I guess I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> But as I say, I found it super interesting, and you cannot deny one thing at least. I, I completely understand why you didn't enjoy it. It is a very particular kind of experience, and Oros will not be for everyone. And point of fact, I'm rather surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. But you have to agree, it is quite different from a lot of the other uh, stuff that we, we play on a regular basis. 100%. So if you like spatial manipulation... If you like, it has some of the same appeal of tile layers, even though you're not really laying tiles because there's a shared geography and manipulating the shared geography is the entirety of the game. It's definitely different from a lot of the other things that are out there. Oros. But yes, I can see why you'd find it. A lot of moving bits. Oh yeah, literally. Yeah. Last up for me is Fancy Realms Deluxe Edition. This is designed by Bruce Glasgow and put out by WizKids. And man, does this app save this game <laughs> because we i just as as a reference said okay for the first game let's just you know actually write out the score oh geez and then i'll i'll rush up and grab my phone and then we'll just check and see if it was right and it's super quick you just like click a button boom score done yeah and so we went through like five games in in no time and it's it's very it's very much of a pusher luck be prepared to to switch on a dime your strategy try to get the most points out of the cards that come up has this very interesting sort of end game mechanism as soon as there's 10 cards out the game will end immediately and so that end of that game will be delayed because at the beginning of your turn you're either taking a card from that discard pool of 10 or you're taking one off the top of the deck so the more cards people take from the pool the longer the game will take not entirely unlike Archeos society or ethnos just so love it more more games need to really start leaning in to how cheap and accessible, well, I mean, yes, developing apps is complicated and expensive, absolutely. But visual recognition software is now sufficiently sophisticated, and everyone's carrying supercomputers in their pockets. We need more scoring apps like that. Whether it's for simple games, whether it's for complicated games, I'm constantly talking about the one that exists for Imperium, which is also a somewhat involved scoring practice. Yeah, I did talk while we were playing that. I said, you know, this is cool, but man, Imperium is like so much more and it's just the right. same thing. It takes a picture and does the whole score for Absolutely. you. It's ridiculous. Especially when you compare it to a lot of other apps, which, yeah, it works great for a lot of people, but very much not for me, where they're like, enter in all the cards you have taken. It's like... At that point, for many games now, for Fantasy Realms, you'd pr it's probably still faster to do that because we're talking about seven-ish cards. Yes. And and there's lots of things you might miss. Right? Absolutely. And this just but covers in the it all. But in the context of lots of other Euros or a lot of other scoring combinatory things, oh, it's just faster to write it down than to laboriously enter it. Like, imagine, like, some people use scoring apps for games like Agricola or Caverna, for example. And that's just, that seems like a waste of time just entering in all the rooms you've got anyway. Yep. So those are the games we played last week. Now on to a quick break while we pay some bills. Now back to the show. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, things that don't matter, Mark. So I'm going to specifically in some of these cases not mention the game because we only talk about games that are interesting. Okay. H how's this for like a, a tagline to like pull you into a game? Countdown to launch an Ian O'Toole game. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> wow, he's getting top billing now? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. really weird, right? People really like Eno Tool. So, and then there's this, there's another game. Where did I, I did, I did write the name of the game here somewhere, didn't I, for this one? Anyway, this is, the, the buzzwords in this next one are fantastic. This is a different game. It's, oh, there it is. There's an Altered is the name of this game that's coming out. It, it brings an absolute revolution to the tradable card game industry. What really lies at the heart of this revolution is a ton of expertly tailored details. A new <laughs> what? Mark, 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 a new rarity system. Oh boy. A deep evolving lore, narrative game mechanics and design. Like I, I don't even want to say this word, okay. Mark. And fidgetal. Fidg, fidg, oh no. <laughs> I was okay. Fidgetal. Okay. Okay, in their defense. This is a new word, Mark. In their defense. Okay. I was I was going to talk about altered before I heard the word fidgetal. Because what they're doing is potentially interesting. They ha- they're having this idea whereby when you own a card, you own the rights to that card. And you can print out the, from Cartamundi, which is a very, very high quality card publisher, uh, publisher in Europe. You can print out for a, basically a buck a card or less if you, if you order more. And you can transfer and loan the rights to this card to other people. They can print out their copies and get proxies and whatever. And so long as they don't play them in officially sanctioned tournaments, everybody can have whatever cards they want. And as a way to bring flexibility into sort of CCGs and TCGs, I think that's potentially interesting. And I thought all this before I heard the word fidgetal. And I want to take it all back. It's a digital experience that comes along with a myriad of life quality improvements for both players and tournament organizers and store owners. Oh boy. So like you said, every card has its own QR code. Man, oh man. <laughs> At least we're, we're li- okay. Here, here's in my defense and in defense of Altered, we are increasingly living in an ownership environment where you seldom have to trade off the privileges of ownership for facility of use. For example, Steam, the distribution mechanism in PC gaming, has a whole bunch of quality of life improvements and a whole bunch of facilities. You have multiple machines, ease of getting new games, automatic updates, cloud saves, etc., etc. But as a consequence, you don't really own anything anymore. And Valve can just take it away whenever they want to. And you can't sell it and you can't transfer it, right? On the other hand, if you have a bunch of CDs, like from back in the 90s for like Diablo 1 or something, you can sell it, you can transfer it, you can trade it, you can do whatever you want to it. And I respect the fact that Altered is trying to give you the benefits of both. But I wish they had not birthed into the world the monstrosity that is the word fidgetal. Because it's physical and digital. I know, Walker. <laughs> you're making it worse. <laughs> Stop explaining it, please. All right, let's move on. Shall we? So we talked about this in our Pledge of Indifference, where we go over crowdfunding stuff, and I want to make sure that all listeners know about this game. It is called Tiny Laser Heist. Oh, yeah. It is a hilariously awkward 3D heist game. It says it's part of the the name of the game even. So it's this giant sort of... Giant uh, is a bit much. It's, it's tiny. It's pretty big. It's pretty... Okay, it's pretty large. In, yeah. in, the, in the world of board gaming and, and, and dexterity games, Fair it's enough. like a, a, a cube, but just the rails of a cube. And in this rails of a cube, there's all these red strings that go back and forth the center of it that are pretending to be lasers. And then you take these little hands that are on the ends of poles and you're manipulating stuff 
within this cube, try not to, you know, spring these laser things while you're doing all sorts. And it's cooperative. Someone might have another hand that's also trying to help at the same time. It's going to be amazing. Check it out. It is on Kickstarter right now. Tiny Laser Heist. Huge fans of Tiny Laser Heist. I hope it is good. I hope it is good. It's got it's got to be good for at least two or three. It plays. seems like the kind of premise that would be hard to mess up in execution unless the physical components just don't work. True, which is true of almost any any dexterity game. We'll see what happens when it enters production. On the topic of trading card games, many of you have already read about the Magic the Gathering heist at Gen Con, where five figures worth of Magic the Gathering cards were stolen. However, I won't mention any names because I. I Nobody has been convicted or even arrested of anything yet. There is purportedly security camera footage of the two thieves, one of them wearing a t-shirt of a board game he published. <laughs> it's odd because I bet you it's the most the most traffic the most public, publicity the most traffic that, that, that board game's got. <laughs> uh, which I think is instructive. I know for sure that if I ever decide to commit some kind of crime, I will absolutely be wearing a Board Game Barrage shirt, and I will be able to publicly say, in truth, that I am Mark from Board Game Barrage. So, Mr. Basada, be ready for that. <laughs> this is I just can't get over this. Is like, it is one thing to commit a crime. Well, you got to fit in with the, with everyone in the in the around you, right? It's it was a perfect disguise. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is another thing to commit a crime on security feed in broad daylight. It isn't quite another anyway. Uh, I think that that when I eventually engage in my crime spree with my BGB t-shirt, it will bring a new meaning to the expression pod boys for life, given that many of them will then end up with life sentences. Uh, so I've got my alibi all, 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 already. This is going to be great. Now that we've established that board gamers are that stupid. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> On the subject of trading card games, Richard Garfield, he put out a game in, in 2017 called Spynet. I played Spynet. I looked it up. I remember the art being terrible, but... By even his account, he, he feels it was an underappreciated game, Mark. So they're bringing it back out again in the name of Shadow Blades. So if you ever... Shadow Blades? Shadow Blades. Oh my you know, goodness. Shadow You're right. Blades. I'm not saying it right. And so if you were a fan of Spynet, but not the art, I remember, like I had watched some videos to try to remind myself, it was very forgettable, but I remember after watching some of the videos, it's like, yeah, I remember, I'm starting to remember it. And it was kind of fun. So I'm sure I'll try out this, the new Shadow Blades version, because the art is much, much better. It was like all sort of gray, weird, you know, like when you have those really weird, sh that weird shadow art where it's dark gray, and then you have this like a really heavy colored light coming down the yes. one side. So yeah, it was that type of art. I see. So yes, Shadow Blades coming out soon. So there was a game on Kickstarter called Farms Race that had a promo pack that was meant to be parodies of other board games. Someone affiliated with Stonemaier Games uh, sent a request to Kickstarter that the campaign be pulled on the basis that, and we can quote on this one, on the basis that, quote, it's advertised under the guise of a parody, but they've done so without our permission and using our icons, end quote. And this is sponsored everyone's favorite kind of internet post, the internet post that starts with, I am not a lawyer, and then legal analysis. And being the hypocrite that I am, I will now do exactly the same. Sweet. Now, number one, just to maximize the hypocrisy, I think that when you start the sentence with, I am not a lawyer, you should then end the sentence with, I am not a lawyer, and just be done with it. 
That having been said, a lot of people are saying a lot of things about American copyright law, and I don't know a whole lot about American law, but I know they're not saying anything that's accurate. I mean, there were just two cases even very recently, Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith and Jack Daniels versus VIP Products, that absolutely complicate these very simple ideas, like what is transformative? Well, guess what? That's for courts to decide. What constitutes a parody? Guess what? That's for courts to decide. We had the spectacle of in the American Supreme Court, a sitting justice of the United States Supreme Court asked the producers of a dog toy that was premised on poop jokes, asking them in the august chamber of the marble-clad halls, saying, where's the joke? Explain to me the joke. And then we have to explain poop jokes on the basis of sour mash whiskey. This is the world we live in, Walker. This is what intellectual property law looks like. However, however, I will merely point out that in general, and this is true both in the U.S. and Canada and lots of other places, you only get the legal representation that you can afford. But I wish that they hadn't engaged the takedown notice under the aegis of, it, uh, under the paradigm of, it's advertised under the guise of a parody, but they've done so without our permission. You don't need permission to do a parody. If you needed permission to do a parody, we wouldn't have parody. Not everyone can be Weird Al Yankovic, all right? It's great that Weird Al gets permission. Good for him. He's a fine human being, and I'm sure it works. But the idea that parody and satire can only exist with the official sanction of whoever you're making fun of, I find offensive as somebody who takes humor and criticism seriously. Anyway... I wish that they had just dressed up this complaint a little bit better. That's my primary complaint, yes. honestly, to be entirely frank. How this shakes out, I don't know. I will merely observe that Kickstarter seems to be very, very much like YouTube in that the burden seems very, very much on the person who gets accused of copyright infringement. It is very easy to get something taken down. It seems very hard to defend yourself. And all the onus is on the individual making the thing to defend themselves. I don't, I haven't seen the card in Farms Race. It's gotten pulled. Whatever. But this idea that copyright can inoculate yourself from parody is nonsense. But there's a little bit of twist to it, right? Because it wasn't as though it was a, a, a separate parody. It was a card that was to be used in a Stonemeyer game. Yeah, so, so there is a little, there's a little bit. No, of no, I agree with you. It, yeah. I agree with you. The, I, I don't want to talk too much about this because no, again, that's where I think the I'm not a lawyer needs to get out. It's true. One of the other standards with respect to whether or not copyright law has been violated and whether or not something is fair use is the notion: Can consumers get confused? Like one of the things that 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 one of the reasons why Jack Daniels wasn't able to get the dog toy pulled was because there's not going to be a whole bunch of confusion about people in the pet aisle looking at the dog toy thinking, oh, will that get me drunk? Because there's no, you know, you can't really claim that that's going to happen. In the context of Farms Race, publishing a card that, that tries to look like a Wingspan card, I think that case gets a little bit more complicated. As to the specifics, I will not comment too much more about the specifics because I am not a lawyer. Anyway. <laughs> Farms race. Farms race. Farms race. Soon to be, I'm sure, back on Kickstarter. I hope. You know, I just hope that people are able to iron these things out. There are claims that this is Stonemaier bullying. I don't know. I don't know who said what to where, right? And this is, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. But this is also... Only I get... If I'm going to be a hypocrite, Walker, you can't also be a hypocrite. I'm just saying there's always the complaint saying that if you don't... A lot of these times, like, uh, Nintendo does this... As well, and a lot, a lot of big companies do this. If you don't start putting lawsuits out there, yeah, then where do you draw the line? It's sort of you have to sort of you have to defend your copyright exactly. or, or it can lapse. 
I will also point out that this may be one of those instances where permission is actually better than forgiveness because uh, it's like when publishers ask to quote us or people ask to quote us on various campaigns. And my response has always been the same. It's like anything we say publicly, you can quote, but it's awfully kind of you to ask. You know, it's a polite thing to do and it can avoid problems later on. The problem, though, I can't even really enshrine that as a standard, though, because then that implies that it's actually some sort of has some force behind it rather than just politeness. And there's politeness on one hand and law on the other. And I am very, very much in favor of somebody who lives in a, in a regime. Canada is not as bad as the U.S., but it's similar, that has very, very strange and very preferential copyright laws of saying that whoever holds a copyright gets to give permission to whoever they want to about how it's used and anybody else doesn't get to make fun of them. That's not a that's not a legal regime I want to live under. So on the one hand, should Farms Race have asked for permission? Maybe. But is that the legal standard we want to promulgate? I'd say no. But then again, I'm a hypocrite, not a lawyer. Then again, this is the news and why it doesn't matter. <laughs> now on to the topic of the week, which is disappointment or the cruel betrayal of expectations. Ooh. Cruel, Walker. It's like butter, Mark. Cruel. It's like butter. It's like, look, I'm not a parent, but if I were a parent or if I had that position of influence over a child, sometimes knowing Huey, I feel like I am, but anyway, I would tell them the following thing. The world is not just. The universe is unfair. And it is entirely conceivable that someday, at some point, John Perry or David Thompson will release a bad game. And then they will cry, as children want to do. Uh, but uh, such is the way of things. So this came up mostly for me was because of two games that have come out recently. <laughs> which is Yucatan and Lords of Ragnarok. Yes. Now, let's go for an alternate universe. Let's say a game, these games came out with no sort of forbearance of their predecessor. Right. If 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 Yucatan had been released before Kemet. Not even if, before. Just just say here's another oh, game. Oh you hadn't played it. Here here no, even if we played it. But just say if it just said here's here's another game from Madagot. It's called Yucatan. Has nothing to do with Clement. This is sure. not this sure, is sure, not sure, you sure. know sister game. Would we would we be as harsh on it than, yeah. than we were? Same as uh Lords of Ragnarok, let's just say if they called it some just Ragnarok. Yeah. Came out after Lords of Hell's just called Fighty, it Fighty, Big Tree. Although it is so similar. Yeah. That that I I think in that particular case, we'd be just... I think in that case, first. we would have had to have not played Lords of Hell. Yes. I think it would have to have been released first. Do you don't so. like my title, Fighty, Fighty, Big Tree? I thought you'd like that. Fighty, Fighty, Big Tree. It's good. It's a good one? Okay. Yeah, Fighty, Fighty, Big Tree. But there's all sorts of other reasons, right? That was... Uh, the first one I have is hyped by a content creator you trust. That's the worst part of disappointment, right? <laughs> We get these podcast people, <laughs> they hype up a game, and then it comes out, and it's a pile of trash. Ugh. Well, that's the thing. That's one of the reasons why, this is getting a little bit meta and self-reflective here. I apologize. We'll move on quickly. I I, I pride, I actually take a certain degree of pride that we're very bad at communicating enthusiasm. Like, we're not, we're not enthusiasm merchants. We're not, evangel- we're not evangelists, right? When we talk about something being good... We do so in a very different tone than a lot of other people. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. One of the good things about it, though, is that I don't think we're very, very good at communicating our emotions that we have, except through actual words. Like, I really liked the thing. Here's why. Instead of just, you know, being voluble and expressive in the same... Anyway. It was so good. (laughs) 
Anyway, I, I take a certain degree of pleasure from the fact that when I'm talking about something I love, I often don't sound like I'm gushing, or at least I try not to. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe listeners are thinking, what are you talking about? You're the worst at this, but that's my perspective anyway. And unfortunately, sometimes it's uh, it sort of builds up, when, especially when it's from a big designer or it's from a, a big publisher. There's a lot more content creation done on that particular game, and therefore yeah. it sort of adds all into you hoping that it's good. And, and then, sometimes and quantity has not. a quality all its own, yeah. And then... Uh, the next one I have here is what we've already talked about, a sister game, right? Yep. So when it comes out and it's supposed to be, you know, the same as, and sometimes it's nothing like it, right? With all these different Azul games that are, com- <laughs> that are completely different, right? <laughs> sure, sure, which sure. Is, which I think is a detriment to them, right? Because a lot of them are very good and they're so much not like Azul that I think they might be losing uh, a part of the, the market there. Maybe, but if they're all good, there's no, there, there's less possibility of that sort of crushing disappointment. The thing is, is that I love designs specifically of this topic of, of sister games or cousin games or brother-in-law games or, or aunt's twice removed games. I love designs iterating. I love seeing these, these designs evolve. And from a perspective, I, I, I talked about this when we were discussing Lords of Ragnarok. It's fascinating how bad it is. Because in some ways, they're very clearly trying to improve on the faults of Lords of Hellas. Structurally speaking, the monster hunting criterion for victory is now so much better. And it makes so much more sense. And in practice, it's the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's hyperbole. But in practice, it just doesn't come together at all. Yeah, like on paper, it sounds great. Exactly, exactly. And so that, that even further compounds the disappointment. Because here I am reading the rule book. Thinking, oh, that sounds like a lot better than the way it worked in Lords of Alice. Yeah, I'm going to jump way ahead where that's where it is. It's a deceiving rule book where you read the rules and it sounds great. Oh, Rising Sun, look at this. There's this whole negotiation phase, Mark. We're going to negotiate in Rising Sun and we're going to use this money and we're going to make deals and stuff. And then it just does not pan out. In my defense, I kind of saw that coming with Rising Sun. I kind of suspected there wasn't enough grist for the mill. For, for the negotiation. But uh, yeah, I was still disappointed though. <laughs> so lots <laughs> well, of games. Ri- like Rising that. Sun for me was uh, more disappointing because of the... Uh, my m- The disappointment started when I read the rulebook because the f- it was the framing and the designer that really made me excited. The framing, it being a negotiation game in the same way, like a reinvention of the negotiation game in the same way that Blood Rage was kind of a reinvention of the troops on a map game. So next up is designer. So if a game comes out, from a designer you really trust or a lot of games that he likes and then it just doesn't add up. I, this, don't, want, I don't want to point at particular games. Yeah, I, like, I will. Like San Francisco. <laughs> oh, Reiner Knizia has designed many, yes. many forgettable games and some of them possibly even bad. Yeah, for, for me, design pedigree is absolutely the, the one that I fall into the most. Let me relate something that was uh, an exchange I had. <laughs> 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 With Erin Lee Escobedo. Uh, I I called her a designer of Meltwater. Meltwater is a brilliant game. And uh, to my lasting shame, as sort of a throwaway comment, just to try to found, sound plus fancy, I called her an auteur. And she objected on two very reasonable grounds. Well, one of them is absolutely unimpeachable. The other one you can evaluate for yourself. The first thing is she said, I reject the auteur theory of authorship, which is absolutely legit. Auteur means something very specific, and I shouldn't have been throwing it around. That was absolutely inappropriate. And number two, uh, she <laughs> she accused me of a term which is uh, not fit for a family show, but she accused me of, of something called doofus erasure. She didn't use the word doofus. 
she uh, used a word that rhymes with dip slip. Um, and uh, <laughs> she basically like, look, if you if you lionize the basically the point that she was getting at was you shouldn't lionize the designer. And I had a similar exchange. I was reminded of this actually a few weeks ago when talking to Efka from No Pun Included. And he was like, "Why? I don't believe in talent, he says. Which is strange for a man with such talent. But anyway, setting that aside, he's like, I don't believe in talent. And he basically took me to task for the way that I talk about designers. And I've, I've actually tried to have a subtle shift as a consequence. I take their point that when we're saying... When we say or said things like, I'm a fan of Reiner Knizia, there's a whole bunch of implications that we don't actually mean. For one thing, that doesn't mean we like hang- spending time with him. It doesn't necessarily mean we have a notion of his character. He could be the meanest person. Well, actually, we have a little bit of evidence that he's not a mean man, that he's a very- actually a very nice man. But anyway, setting all that aside, uh, <laughs> what we actually mean is, is that we, ad- we attribute a catalog to him. And we think we can infer from this catalog that there are features that carrying forward we enjoy or that we can generalize from the games that he's published. So as a shorthand, it's misleading. So I try to say I'm a fan of Reiner Knizia's games. That's something we can say. But even that can lead you to some some big problems. I remember earlier on in the hobby when I first fell in love with Reiner Knizia's games that I had very, very disappointing experiences with Amun Ray, the original version, not the anniversary edition, which I think is much, much better. Uh, I was very frustrated by my inability to fall in love with Taj Mahal because I had this idea in my head. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of Ryder Kinsey's games. I'm a fan of, 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 of more gamerly type games. I must love Taj Mahal because that's... Nope, didn't like it. Then, of course, Beowulf came out and that, that solved my problems with that. But what I'm getting at, I guess, is that it's kind of like getting that first dent in a new car. You're like, okay, well... I can still appreciate it as a whole, even though it's got these flaws. That's one of the reasons why I'm nervous. I, I, I joked about John Perry and David Thompson. I'm nervous, right? Every time, because so far I, I play, I haven't played everything in in, in both their. Maybe I have played everything in both their catalogs, but so far their hit rate is with me is about 100, percent right? And I'm really nervous every time. <laughs> I was I was similarly nervous about Matt Gertz until he released uh, Transatlantic. I don't like Transatlantic. Okay, great. Now I can just appreciate the genius games that he's done. What is it, General Quarters that's coming out soon? Maybe that'll be the one. Who knows? Well, the next one could always be the one. It, it creates this, this sense of nervousness. Like I, I remember these moments, like like again, with uh, Amun Ray with Reiner Kinsey, the original version, uh, Tosh Kalar with uh, Vlada Kvadal to a certain extent, but with, with, with Kvadal, uh, I'd already played his earliest games like uh, Arena Moritori to Salutant. Um, Sherwood and Granalon, like his very, very early stuff that were eh, kind of uneven and not very good. Then, Ma- you know, Through the Ages comes out and Mage Knight comes out and then Tosh Kalar comes out. So when I, I didn't like Tosh Kalar, I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, another game of his that I don't really enjoy very much. But in the case of Tosh Kalar, it's more of a personal thing. Anyway, I need to stop idolizing designers, but it's hard. It's really hard. We personify and personalize these people in a way that's not particularly healthy for us as critics or for gamers in general as consumers. But again, I look at people who've done... Don't listen to him, David. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> You're on a first-name basis with him? <laughs> no. See, that's the problem. <laughs> Besides, I call him Davy Boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so every time there's a new John Perry game, every time there's a new David Thompson game, I get nervous. And it's not healthy. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was a, that was a nope. protracted digression. Not at all. And that is dis- disappointment from your favorite designer of games, as you say. Yes. Next up are expansions. So you really like a game? 
they announced an expansion. Oh, it's going to be great. It's got to be great. The game's good. Expansion's going to be that much better. <laughs> and then you get uh, Full Moon from Witchstone. Witchstone, and, yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. In the, it's and, just, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to knock on it. As an expansion, <laughs> it is fine. It, you know, it was very interesting. You know, working things. I just wanted more. It was very light expansion. I yeah. wanted a more in depth expansion. So maybe that's just my fault. But nonetheless, here, here you are. You had certain expectations, and they were frustrated. And there's something so particularly unfortunate about that. When when you have no expectations, and a game is terrible. Or, or even better, when you expect a game to be awful and then it is, sometimes that's a blast. We had so much fun playing Starship Samurai. Do you remember that yeah, session? We knew from the start. We knew from the start. I, The moment I cracked open the rulebook, I'm like, I know I'm in for something. Now, some people would argue that that was just us prejudicing ourselves against Starship Samurai. I disagree. I don't, I, why would we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's giant robots. And like... <laughs> It's like yeah. right up our alley, and yeah, we, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. The, we, we we weren't we weren't setting ourselves up for for uh, a, a a negative view of the game. We were just trying to appreciate the absurdity. It's like, oh, and here's this mechanism that's completely unfair and bonkers. Like, oh, ha ha, we had such a great time playing that terrible game. Oh my goodness. Anyway, uh, but that that oh, the sense of expectations. I wish, I wish there was some way to inculcating yourselves an absence of expectation. It would, I think, I think, why can't we all be Vulcans, Walker? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. But I, I, in a way, that, that's part of the hobby as well, but we've covered that before. It's true. You're absolutely and right. And I think it's coming up very soon as well. So publishers, I think I was at fault here, but like, because back in the day, you know, Fantasy Flight, you just buy their next game because back in the day- Who's this you, Walker? There wasn't, uh, <laughs> I said, there, I, there wasn't many games that you could get here in North America. So back, you could, you just bought every game you could get your hands on. It was mostly from Fantasy Flight. And uh, at the turn of the century, that that was still when Rio Grande and Mayday, sorry, Mayfair rather, sorry, Mayday is someone else. Mayfair and Rio Grande were publishing a lot of really, really good Euros from Alia and a whole bunch of other people. So, sorry, here in Kingston. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> we could get fancy flight games. <laughs> sure. And what were some of your disappointments of those of that era? Well, it was the big the big hit was uh, they did a pre painted miniature game for. Oh, Mutant Chronicles. Mutant Chronicles. Yes. And, In that bizarre scale. Yes, and it was just so bad. I never played it. I saw the miniatures later because someone I know picked them up on Tanga. That's a blast from the past for those that, that used to do that in the U.S., but everyone was just mystified. It, it, nobody has yet found a way to do a successful, hot, bigger than 28 mil scale miniatures game. Not even Games Workshop could yeah, pull it off. They tried it. And they tried it. Not very hard, but they tried it. That was such a bizarre move from them. Now, then again, they did manage to then get great success with other pre-painted miniatures games just for Asmodee to steal it from them. It's it's true. On the topic of, of crushing disappointment, <laughs> watch even, even me, while we're talking about Fantasy Flight, who never had a particular enthusiasm for a lot of the output of the Kevin Wilson, Corey Kaneska era of the turn of the century, even I find it a little sad to see Fantasy Flight hollowed out and gutted the way that it has been. It is bad. It Next, does make me the disappoint. Next up is theme. When a game covers a certain theme and you're very much interested, and then you get Flamecraft, and, uh, <laughs> you know. For me, it's the opposite, though. I'm, I'm honestly, 
even though we've had a lot of really good adaptations, for example, if the theme is is really appealing, I actually, as a knee-jerk response, assume it's going to be awful. I can't remember the last time. Like, early on in the hobby, absolutely, back before you start to develop a certain degree of, of discernment, right? But li- now that we're so jaded, <laughs> honestly, like, something could come up with, uh, you know, my favorite licenses. Uh, Gargoyles was a recent example. Like, I love the Gargoyles show. When the game was... On the positive side of mediocre, I was shocked. <laughs> when the Aliens game wasn't good, we were not surprised. <laughs> yeah, the, the Fate of the Maelstrom. We were uh, Fate of the Nostromo. Nostromo. Uh, no, 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 not that one. No, I mean the, uh, Another Glorious Day in the Core. Gotcha. I was shocked that it was functional, <laughs> but I was not surprised that it wasn't good. So I actually can't remember the last time I was really hyped about a, a, about a theme. Uh, oh, maybe some historical games about the French Revolution. Yeah, I had to fight myself today. There's one called coming out called Avatar The Last Airbender Fire Nation Rising. I saw that, yes. And so there's a whole bunch of these rising games. I, I didn't realize that this was part of that sort of line, and I sort of had to fight myself not to get it. Because <laughs> my, my argument was it's just it's it's going to be too light, and I'm going to be disappointed. It's true. It's true. But don't you want to play a Zuko? I so. <laughs> <laughs> so do. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, what was the last time you were disappointed by uh, a, a particular theme? I don't think I can put my hands on it directly off the beginning, but it's the same okay. sort of thing as, as a scythe or something, right? You 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 look at the pictures and you see these giant mechs and you think there's going to be this real interesting sort of mech combat. Ah. Uh, it's not there. Sure. That kind of thing. So next up I have, which we, I sort of hinted at before, sort of a crowdfunding buildup, right? You're waiting for it. You saw it you know, waiting two or three years. Yeah. The, the the time the time factor alone can... Sometimes it'll kill your anticipation for something, which is great, because then you can approach something with no expectations. And then sometimes it just adds too much. And very few games, I think, can live up to the burden of being anticipated for, you know, a solid year and a half after a big glitzy Kickstarter campaign, which is why I love forgetting about games and glossing over Kickstarter updates. And we've covered that before, so I won't hit that too long. Next up is games that just take too long. Yeah. Right? It really had that one hook, right? Yep. You watch the video or you read And it's read clever the and it's good. And, it's so, and, and then, you love the first few turns. You're and like, this they, is great. And it just dies and they slowly. Just, they just keep hitting that yep. hook over and over again. It's like, do you get it? Do you see what we did? Yep. Do you see this cool thing we did? Yep, absolutely. How about now? Do you see it again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt that way a lot about uh, Battlestar Galactica, actually, back in the day. It's, I like the card mechanism, the, the, the way to resolve those conflicts. It's one of the reasons why I wanted Dark Moon to work better than it did. I kind of felt that way a little bit, you know, on the topic of games we talked about last time. I felt that a little bit about New Angelus. You know, it's a little bit too... I could, I could see... There, though, it was mostly me seeing other people react to it. I was still loving it by the end of the, the of the third hour, but I could see everyone else like starting to flag at the rest of the table. And to a certain extent, that's the worst disappointment of all, right? When you like it, but you can just watch the prospect of you ever playing the game ever again dying. Yes. <laughs> With I, the enthusiasm of your friends. I have that when it's obvious the other players are not enjoying this as much as you are. Yeah. It also works the other way around as well, like where everyone else is enjoying it. <laughs> Yep, absolutely. Also, You're right. Also, uh, and I think I don't. Do I feel that way for uh, Wonderland's War? It's like here we got this cool bag building. And it's got battling. It's got the cards. And then we're gonna do it again and again. I think it's again. just on the no. It's, it's, I, it's very close. Though. It's close. Yeah. It, it's acceptable and it's still good. And people still want to play it. And people are still open to playing it. 
I, but you're right. Like, insofar as its chief flaws are that it's repetitive and overlong, absolutely. But, like, lots of amazing games are overlong. So it's not cripplingly overlong. I think if it were, you know, 10% more, that might just be the tipping point. You're absolutely right. But, yeah, I hear you. Speaking about getting crippling too long, let's talk about this episode. But anyway, so <laughs> next one is when a co-op is too easy. Yes. When a game has very bad narrative. Right, where it's a great adventure game, everything's going well, the mechanisms are great, and then they get into the story and tally part of it. It's like and and then you struck him with the sword and, and you <laughs> and you did stuff. For me, it's discovering that a potentially promising game is married lockstep to the campaign system and you cannot extricate it. Uh, there have been a number of experiences like that over the past well, which is why when things like Oathsworn comes out, it's like, ah, you know, the campaign's super flexible. I'm like, great. Yep. But, but there have been tons and tons of games where it's like, first you do scenario one, and then you just like, oh, can I just play a game? Can I just, can I just play it? No, no, no. Yeah, and it feeds right into this next one. Does not work with the player count that you need. Yes. Which is often the case of inflexible. Uh, yes. Uh, like, it's exactly like a, a, a Splendid Veil. That was one of my crippling disappointments. It's like, oh, really? It feels like, a, especially after just playing Oathsworn, Splendid Veil is just a throwback to, you have to play with the same people. You got to proceed directly from one scenario to the next. Like, oh, I love Nikki Valens and I love the worlds that they make, but come on. I, I, uh, I don't want a new social obligation. Yeah. Replayability. Sometimes, you know, everything looks great. Great theme, everything's working well, but then there's just nothing there. Like you've played it all in the first couple of games, and there's just nothing to go back to. Yeah, we've had a number of reviews like that. Absolutely. And that's the, I only have the one really big one, Mark, the biggest disappointment of all. Mm -hmm. When I find out that you're not coming to the games day, Mark, that's just the biggest disappointment. Walker, that's the sweetest thing you've ever said. You're going to give me a cavity, honey. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate your having decided to spend all this time with us this week. Oof. And we hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>